1: Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that because you're already listening to a podcast. This is the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. Useless Information As you know, I typically ask what I refer to as the question of the day in each podcast. So for today's question, I thought I'd do something a little bit different. And that's because the story I'm about to tell you is referenced in the second verse of a hit song from 1970 by one of rock's most famous acts. And in fact, if you've ever listened to classic rock, you probably know this song. So what I'm going to do is drop in sections of the lyric throughout the story as I tell it, and let's see if you can name that tune. A good place to start the story is on Wednesday, January 3rd of 1951. That's when Osage County Deputy Sheriff Warren Smith was driving on a seldom-traveled road in the outskirts of Tulsa, Oklahoma, and he spotted a blue 1949 two-door Chevrolet. It appeared that the car had been backed into a ditch and abandoned there. So he stopped to investigate, and Smith was horrified by what he saw. The car was bloodstained and just riddled with bullet holes. Yet, surprisingly, there was not a body within sight. And there were no fingerprints, or no footprints, there were no blood trails leading away from the vehicle. What was even more puzzling was the fact that the ignition key was still hanging in the car's dashboard. The car was registered to 33-year-old Carl Mosser, a successful tenant farmer from Atwood, Illinois. And this was further confirmed by $200 in traveler's checks made out in Mosser's name that was scattered throughout the car. It was quickly learned that Mosser, his 29-year-old wife, Thelma, and their three children, that seven-year-old Ronald Dean, five-year-old Gary Carl, and two-year-old Pamela Sue, they were all on their way to Albuquerque to visit Carl's twin brother, Chris, who was, at the time, an army lieutenant there. Which leads us to lyric hint number one, and I'm going to try and say this without singing it. It's hard to do. Here we go. Take a long holiday, let your children play. Hmm, what song could that be? Now the monsters who were taking a long holiday and we hope letting their children play had last been heard from via a postcard that had been mailed five days earlier on December 30th from right there in Tulsa. Every clue at the crime scene implied that none of them would ever be heard from again. Three bullet holes were found in the back seat and one was found in the front. Five shell casings from a thirty-two caliber revolver were found lying on the floorboard, and that's important to remember it was a 32 caliber revolver. They also found a bloodstained pocket knife. There was also a checkered dress that appeared to match one that Pamela Sue was wearing in a photograph that was found inside the car. Another picture showed one of the children wearing a cap, and that was similar to a green one that was picked up about 100 yards or 91.4 meters from the car. One of the most peculiar discoveries was that a service station had affixed a mileage sticker to the car the day before the family began their trip. It showed that the car had 15,500 miles on the odometer. Now, Tulsa is about 600 miles from their home, but the mileage now read 16,600 miles or 1,100 more. That's 500 miles or 805 kilometers that were totally unaccounted for where could they have gone to pick up all that extra mileage deputy smith told the associated press quote if that car was driven anywhere as far as that difference shows the bodies of those people if slain could be hundreds of miles from here in another interview smith stated quote we're almost certain we've got a whole family dead somewhere it's just a question now of finding them he theorized as to what may have happened. Quote, it looked to me like the occupants were traveling through Tulsa and may have been attacked by a hitchhiker. Somebody or something certainly lost lots of blood to cause all that mess. The car was taken to a garage in Tulsa where Chris Mosser positively identified it as being owned by his brother. Quote, I'll get the man who did this. I can't understand this. My brother was one of the jolliest men alive. Someone must have tried to stick him up and Carl swung on him. He and I have always been like that. We never did like anyone who would lie or steal. There were several witnesses, although none were present when the shootings took place. The first was Tulsa resident Pete Esley. After seeing the monster car stuck in a ditch, he stopped and the suspect asked him for the location of the nearest place to get help. Then, 15 minutes later, another unnamed man stopped and was asked for assistance in pulling the car from the ditch. Quote, he was extremely nervous. He asked for a lift to the nearest telephone. So the man drove him to a drugstore. Two employees at that drugstore told police that the man asked to use a phone, stating he wished to call for a cab. All described the suspect as having light hair, stood 5 foot 6 inches tall, that's 168 centimeters, weighed 150 pounds, or 68 kilograms, and that he was wearing a leather jacket. But most distinctively, the man in question had a drooping or squinty eye. Now, about 450 miles or 725 kilometers southwest of the Mosser crime scene, this is near Lubbock, Texas, detectives there were investigating another crime, and they couldn't help but wonder if the two crimes were somehow related. You see, there on December 30th, 58-year-old car mechanic Lee B. Archer made the mistake of stopping to pick up a hitchhiker. Then, almost immediately, the man pulled a gun on Archer and he forced him into the trunk of his car. The hitchhiker then drove the vehicle 350 miles or 560 kilometers northwest, at which point Archer was able to pry open the trunk and safely jump from the moving vehicle. Just three miles east of where Archer escaped, the engine threw a rod and the hitchhiker was forced to abandon the vehicle near Luther, Oklahoma. It wasn't long before the police located Archer's car. Now the suspect, he was long gone, but he left behind a duffel bag that contained a lot of significant evidence. First, all of his clothing had his laundry mark on them. And there was an empty box and a receipt for a thirty-two caliber Colt Automatic serial number 39198, which had been purchased by W.E. Cook St. Louis the previous day at the Boston Dry Goods Store in El Paso, Texas. Farmer Kermit Mackey told investigators that he had seen a man leave Archer's car and then thumb a ride with another vehicle. That car had Illinois plates on it. That, coupled with the fact that thirty-two caliber shell casings had been found in the monster's car, strongly suggested that the same man had committed both crimes. So, just who was W. E. Cook? Well, the whole world is just about to find out. Badman Billy or Cockeyed Cook, both nicknames that the press ascribed to him, was born William Edward Cook Jr. on December 23, nineteen twenty-eight, in Joplin, Missouri which was at one time considered to be the lead and zinc mining capital of the world. He was the second youngest of his mother Laura May's 11 children, the six youngest of whom were from her second marriage to Billy's dad, you know, William Cook Sr. Unfortunately, on November 10, 1933, the unexpected occurred. His mother suddenly died from a cerebral hemorrhage. Billy was a month shy of his fifth birthday when this happened. Well, shortly after this, his dad relocated the family to live in an unused mine, but caring for all the children became too much of a burden and he abandoned them all. Years later, Mrs. Vernie Goff Bryson, a social worker, testified that she found young Billy living in a cave with seven of his siblings. The family was then broken up and the children were either sent to live with other families or they were placed into orphanages. Billy spent several years in a juvenile boarding home, but his foster mother found him impossible to live with. In 1939, the court took him away after he was found in, quote, rags and tatters, appears to have been neglected and abused, his clothes so dirty they would stand alone. So Billy was then placed in another boarding house, but that didn't last very long. He refused to both stay in that home and go to school, so a judge gave him a choice. Go back home and continue your education or be sent to reform school. Which one would you choose? Well, 12-year-old Billy chose reform school. After spending 10 months at reform school, Billy was released into the care of his 18-year-old sister Beatrice, who had recently married. Well, that arrangement didn't last long. Beatrice was unable to deal with the incorrigible Billy and soon asked juvenile authorities to take him back. As a result, Billy would spend the next few years bouncing between various homes and orphanages. His first run-in with the law occurred in October 1943 when he whacked a cab driver on the head and robbed him of $11, which is about $167 today. That got him a five-year stint in reform school, from which he ran away from in 1946. After being caught, he was placed into an industrial school, but he ran away once again. Then, Billy was picked up for stealing a car in Jefferson City, Missouri, and an additional five years was piled on to his sentence. He would serve the bulk of his time at the state penitentiary before his release on parole in June of 1950, that's six months prior to committing the violent crimes that he was now accused of. Upon his release, he went to live with his dad for a short period of time. The elder cook said that his son told him that he planned to, quote, Live by the gun from now on. I'll hold up people and get lots of money. Anytime they say I've done something, you tell them I was with you. Well, his dad refused the offer. Quote, I don't want anything to do with it. He added, I wouldn't turn him in. He's a dangerous man. He would kill me. Perhaps the tattoos on the knuckles of both of Billy's hands spelled out his attitude on life best. H-A-R-D-L-U-C-K. Hard luck. Well, now that you've met Billy Cook, more of the lyrics of today's mystery song make sense. Quote, There's a killer on the road, his brain is squirming like a toad. Can you name the song yet? A nationwide manhunt was underway for both Badman Billy and the missing Mosser family. Authorities attempted to reconstruct their whereabouts before the bullet-ridden car was found on January 3rd, and from what they were able to piece together... Billy Cook and the monsters had driven aimlessly throughout Texas, Oklahoma, and Arkansas for several days. Now, I had to use a map to piece this all together, so don't worry too much about where these things are. But here are a few of the substantial sightings that were believed to be legitimate at the time. On Saturday, December 30th, two men walked into a Wichita Falls, Texas convenience store that was operated by 63-year-old E.O. Cornwell. As one of the men grabbed the other from behind, the second man blurted out, Help me! Help me! He's going to kill me and take my wife! A tussle then broke out between the pair, and a window was broken. So Cornwell then drew out his own gun and demanded payment for the window. So the two men then ran outside, and they speedily drove off. Quote, I thought it was just a squabble between the men and maybe a ruse to hijack me. Cornwell continued, I would have shot them, but I thought I might hit someone and I didn't think it was too serious of an offense. Customer Claude Skinner gave chase in his pickup truck but stopped after someone in the car began firing back at him. A hat was left behind in the store. It had a label that read, The Famous Store, Decatur, Illinois, and Carl Mosser was known to purchase his clothing there. Then at 6 p.m. on Monday, January 1st, two men, one positively identified as Billy Cook from an Associated Press wire photo, they stopped at the Winthrop Cafe in where else? Winthrop, Arkansas. A woman and three children remained behind in the car. While well, the men filled the thermos with coffee and a quart jar with water, then they purchased food and two packs of cigarettes. Investigators would later find both an empty thermos bottle and and cigarette packaging bearing an Arkansas revenue stamp in the Mosser car. Around 8.50 that same evening, two men, a woman, and three children stopped for gas at a service station near Okmulgee, Oklahoma. That would be the last time that anyone would see the Moses alive. At 10 p.m., a man identified through police photographs as Billy Cook purchased gas in Henrietta, Oklahoma. This time, Cook was alone. Now the two towns are only about 20 minutes apart. Investigators learned that prior to December 24, 1950, Billy Cook had worked as a dishwasher in a restaurant in Blythe, California. So acting on a hunch that Billy may have returned to the same motel apartment he'd been staying in, on Saturday, January 6, 27-year-old Sheriff's Deputy Homer Waldrop went to check it out. Waldrop was correct, and upon his arrival, Billy pulled a gun on him, and he took the deputy hostage. Get in the car, Billy ordered. I'm going with you. They drove southward as Billy told his story. Quote, I've murdered seven other people, and I would just as soon murder you. In addition to the Mosser family, he claimed to have killed two men in Oklahoma and buried them in a snowdrift, although those two bodies would never be identified or found. After driving for about 40 miles or 64 kilometers into the desert, Cook ordered Waldrop to stop the car and get out. Billy then tied him up, took his money and gun, and then sped away in the cop car. Cook apparently spared the deputy's life because Billy had worked in the same cafe where Waldrop's wife was employed. In other words, Cook knew Waldrop's wife. So Billy raced off in the police car. It would later be found in Ogilvy, California, just north of the Mexican border. The body of 31-year-old Robert Hilton Dewey of Seattle was found in the trunk. Dewey had been in the area to visit his dad, and tire tracks suggested that Billy had driven off in Dewey's blue 1947 Buick. The next day, El Centro, California police chief Guy Woodward decided to drive southward into Mexico to search for Dewey's car. He saw nothing on the trip downward through the desert, but spotted the car when returning. Tracks around the vehicle suggested that Billy had flagged down another car that was heading north. Well, around the same time, the Imperial County Sheriff's Office received a report that two California prospectors, they have Forrest Dameron, who was 32, and Jim Burke, who was 33, they were both missing. They were on a hunting trip and had last been seen in San Felipe, Mexico, on Saturday. That's the same day that Cook killed Robert Dewey. Police feared that Dameron and Burke could also be victims, so they combed the region by air and ground for Burke's maroon 1954 four-door Studebaker. The families of the missing men offered $500. That's about $5,000 today. They offered a $500 reward for finding them or for arresting Billy Cook. Day after day, the search for Billy Cook, the two miners in the Mosser family, continued. On Sunday, January 15th, the governors of Arkansas and Oklahoma proclaimed the day as the, quote, Search for the Carl Mossers Day. An estimated 3,000 citizens combed eastern Oklahoma and western Arkansas, but they were unsuccessful. It would take the tip of a man named Harold Suman, who had served time in the Missouri Reformatory with Cook, to find them. Suman informed detectives Carl E. Nutt and Walter Gamble that Cook had once threatened to throw him down an abandoned mine shaft in Joplin. Suman's hunch was correct. On Monday, January 16, the detectives found the bodies of the Mosser family and their dog floating in a 50-foot or 15.2-meter deep shaft that was one block from Billy Cook's former home a $1,500 reward that Friends of the Monsters had put up for finding the bodies was equally divided among those three men. Well, it turns out that just hours earlier, Tijuana Police Chief Francisco Kraus Morales had followed three men into a Santa Rosalia restaurant. He simply walked up behind Billy Cook, took the thirty-two caliber pistol from his belt, and he arrested him. Cook, who was suffering from dysentery, put up absolutely no resistance. His two hostages, Dameron and Burke, were unharmed. Well, it turns out the Mexican police picked up on their trail after Javier Gonzalez, a mine paymaster, reported having struck up a conversation with three men in the then semi-abandoned mining town of El Mar Mole. Gonzalez later saw a wanted poster in Tijuana and recognized Cook as being one of the men he had spoken to. It was believed the Cook had been temporarily holed up in a nearby onyx mine before moving on to Santa Rosalia. Now, the monetary reward offered up by the Burke and Dameron families was equally divided between Javier Gonzalez and Police Chief Morales, the latter half being donated to a Children's Aid Society. After his arrest, Billy was flown to San Diego, California, and claimed to have absolutely no memory of killing anyone. He had no recollection of the Mosser family, and he insisted that after he released Deputy Waldrop in the desert, his next memory was that of waking up on the side of the road in Mexico in a car that wouldn't start. And this probably comes as no surprise, but Dameron and Burke were flown back to the United States on a separate flight. Burke told a reporter, quote, We saw him standing by the side of the road apparently in need of help. Seeing that as an American, we stopped to assist. Cook produced a pistol and then climbed into the back seat. During most of the seven days following, Cook kept the gun in his lap with it cocked. At night when we camped, he sat with his back against a tree or rock with the gun cocked. We were afraid to try to escape. Well, finally, several days after his arrest, Billy Cook admitted to his crimes and told investigators what had happened. It had all started on Christmas Day of 1950. Billy became homesick, so he got drunk and left Blythe, California. Then, on December 30th, he held up Lee Archer and locked him in his car's trunk, of course from which he escaped, as we know. Billy then continued driving until he spotted a police car. Panicking, he abandoned the car, leaving behind all of his personal belongings. That's why his name was on everything. He was then picked up by the Mossers, forcing Carl to drive along Route 66 westward, ultimately arriving in Wichita Falls, Texas, which is where convenience store operator E.O. Cornwell chased them out with a gun. Well, it's time for mystery lyric number three, and if you didn't get to this point, this may give it away. If you give this man a ride, sweet family will die. Anyway, after being chased out of the convenience store, they initially headed southward until Billy decided to turn around and head towards Albuquerque, New Mexico, But somehow they ended up farther south near Carlsbad, New Mexico. And that's where Carl Mosser tried to overtake Billy. He warned them if he ever tried that again, he would kill them all. Well, they then continued to El Paso, Texas, but then reversed direction towards Houston after spotting a police car. From there, it was on to where they were sighted in the Winthrop Cafe in Arkansas. As they approached Joplin, Missouri, Thelma Mosser became hysterical and the children started screaming. So he tied up the entire family, except for Carl, of course, because he was driving. After passing another police car, Mrs. Mosser once again became hysterical and Carl decided to stop the car. That's when Cook shot them all to death. Then he remembered the old mine shaft in Joplin and disposed of the bodies there. He then headed west until the car broke down outside of Tulsa, where the vehicle was later discovered by police. Cook hitchhiked back to Blythe, California, arriving on January 4th. As we know, two days later, Deputy Sheriff Waldrop arrived at his door and Billy kidnapped him, ultimately abandoning Waldrop in the desert. He then used the sirens of Waldrop's police car to pull over Robert Dewey and force him to drive towards Yuma, Arizona. Now, Dewey was incredibly nervous and accidentally dropped his cigarette, and as Dewey bent over to pick it up, Cook thought he was reaching for a gun, and he shot him. Dewey attempted to fight back, then he fell out of the car, and Cook fired a shot into his back and finally killed him. From there, Billy drove Dewey's car into Mexico, where it broke down, and then he hitched a ride with the two prospectors, and of course, he was with them for about a week before being arrested. On January 22nd, Billy Cook exited a train in Oklahoma City to stand trial for the kidnapping of the Mosser family. Now, keep in mind the murders took place in Joplin, Missouri, so he could only be charged with kidnapping of the Mossers in Oklahoma. Well, initially, Billy entered an insanity plea but changed it to guilty because his lawyers believed that would allow him to avoid the death penalty. On Tuesday, March 20th, 1951, Billy Cook was sentenced to 300 years, that's 60 years for each of the five counts of kidnapping, and they were to be served consecutively in, quote, Alcatraz or another safe prison where he had no chance of escape. But it was soon realized by federal authorities that Cook could be permitted to leave jail in as little as 20 years. So the decision was made to place him on trial in El Centro, California for the murder of Robert Dewey. On November 23, 1951, a jury took just 50 minutes to find him guilty. 23-year-old Billy Cook was executed in the gas chamber at San Quentin on December 12, 1952. Cook's body was taken to the Comanche Funeral Home where Funeral Director Glenn E. Boydson arranged for a public viewing. The town of Comanche, Oklahoma, which had a population of 1,300 back then, was not prepared for what came next. Over the next few days, 10,000 curiosity seekers came to view the body of bad man Billy. This included 200 high school students from nearby Byers, Texas, who arrived in six school buses. Others came from 38 different U.S. states, Canada, and as far away as Alaska, which wasn't a state back then and thousands more were expected to attend Billy's funeral. $25, that's about $250 today in small change, was left in a collection jar that had been placed on top of the casket, and that was supposedly to purchase flowers for his funeral. An estimated 250 letters were received from various church groups saying that they had all prayed for Billy and his family. Well, this all proved to be too much for Billy's family so they arranged for a hearse to transfer Cook's body back to Joplin, where he was secretly buried one day earlier than it was originally scheduled. Only a priest, Billy's 75-year-old father, his sister Bertha, and a sister-in-law were in attendance at the time. Billy was placed in an unmarked grave in Joplin's Peace Cemetery in a family plot, not far from where his mother is buried Two years to the day after Billy Cook locked Lee Archer in the trunk of his car and kidnapped the Mossers, the final case against him was closed in Oklahoma City. Having been charged with armed robbery there, Justice of the Peace Ben Lafon dropped the charge on the grounds that, quote, the subject is now deceased. Yet Billy Cook did manage to cause a bit more chaos from the grave. The Oklahoma State Board of Embalmers and Funeral Directors charged Comanche Funeral Director Glenn Boydson was soliciting for Billy Cook's funeral and then displaying the body. On February 2nd, 1953, Boydson was found guilty of gross malpractice and had his license suspended for three years. And this leads us to the answer to today's question of the day. Were you able to name the song that has a verse inspired by Billy Cook? Well, here's that complete verse, and I place it in order this time. There's a killer on the road, his brain is squirming like a toad. Take a long holiday, let your children play. If you give this man a ride, sweet family will die. Killer on the road. That is the second verse from Riders on a Storm by the Doors, which reached number 14 on Billboard's Hot 100 chart back in 1971. Jim Morrison had written those words as part of a poem he had titled The Hitchhiker and from which he planned to base a movie on. Clearly, Billy Cook's murderous crime spree was a big inspiration on what he wrote. Now, the whispered lyrics that Jim Morrison recorded to create the echo effect in that song would be the last thing he ever recorded. 27-year-old Morrison would die on July 3, 1971 in Paris, and since no autopsy was performed, his cause of death was listed as heart failure, although witnesses said it was due to a heroin overdose. I'll end the story with a statement Billy Cook made at the time of his arrest. I don't know why, this just kind of stuck with me as I was doing this. Quote, I never had a friend in the world. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide.
0: Get Rusko. Rusko. Get Rusco Windows and Doors from the Tulsa Window and Door Company. Get free estimate on Rusco.
1: Now's the time.
0: Call Madison 61189. Madison 61189. At the Tulsa Window and Door Company.
1: You just heard 22 seconds of a really bad jingle, and now I get 23 seconds to say whatever I want while the dorky music plays in the background. So, I'm announcing the biggest sale in history. Every single window and door is free. Yes, that's correct, totally free. And next up, free listening pleasure is more of that dorky jingle.
0: Get free estimate on Lasco. Now's the time. Call Madison 61189. Madison 61189. At, At the Tulsa Window and Door Company. company.
1: That undated commercial is from the 1950s and was produced by the talent at Allied Artists Radio. These jingles would then be transferred to a 7-inch or 17.8-centimeter diameter 45 RPM record and mailed to local radio stations across the United States. Now keep in mind this is a time when television was just exploding in popularity and radio share of the listening audience was plummeting. So it was costly for small independent radio stations to produce jingles for their advertisers. So they turned to companies like Ally to create the commercials for them. And to keep costs down, Ally typically used the music from songs that were in the public domain. You know, think London Bridge is Falling Down or Old McDonald's Farm and so on. Therefore, being able to avoid paying royalties for their use. Now, this did have one added benefit. The songs were so familiar that they were more likely to stay in a listener's head for a longer time. Of course, having a catchy tune with poor lyrics doesn't work to anyone's advantage. Or does it? I don't know. I couldn't find out much about the Tulsa Window and Door Company. Their print ads claimed that they were Oklahoma's oldest window and door company and that one should call Fred Slack for an estimate. As you heard, they specialize in Rusco brand windows and doors, Now, I had never heard of Rusco and was surprised to find out that they are still around. They've been manufacturing windows and doors since 1937. As for the Tulsa Window and Door Company itself, the last mention I could find of the company, now it may still be in business, but the last mention I could find in the newspaper archives was back in 1963. If you'd like to hear more of these Allied Artists ads, the Internet Archive has a collection of 122 of their commercials available to listen to for free. You just go to archive.org and do a search for Allied Artists Radio, and it should pop right up. Some of the spots are worse than this one, and others are actually much better. I'll probably include a few more of them in the podcast over the next few years, so just stay tuned for that. But there's a definite sense of innocence in each one of them.
0: So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: At the time, I only felt a punch. I think everything
0: went wrong. His drug of choice was heroin. Binging and purging over and over and over. Evaluate you, and if you're okay to go, they're
1: going to let you go. This is Justin, and I do the Peripheral Podcast. I have a true crime background, but when telling the stories of true crime, sometimes you have to gloss over topics like mental illness, drug addiction, sexual assault. And I feel like we do that in life too.
0: So this podcast is my attempt to bring all of these topics that are
1: on the peripheral into the mainstream. So please join me wherever you listen to podcasts. In other news, here are three stories that all have to do with secret marriages, so don't tell anyone. In our first story, which is dated January 2nd of 1906, it was reported that teacher Miss Mana E. Hall had submitted her resignation to the Board of Education in Sedalia, Missouri. Her reason for doing so is that she had secretly married Herbert Stone the previous July. And as I've mentioned before in this podcast, Back then, female teachers were expected to resign from their positions as soon as they were married, which is something that Miss Hall chose not to do. The reason she didn't tender her resignation was that the new couple was dependent on her salary until Mr. Stone could secure a permanent position. He had been employed at various drugstores in Sedalia, but his most recent job had been at the Missouri Pharmacy, which had closed and was now in the hands of creditors but he wasn't unemployed. He was working as a clerk at the Chamois Drugstore at the time of his new bride's resignation. It turns out that Mr. Stone had been renting rooms at 236 South Missouri Avenue, and that was owned by Miss Jenny Hall, who just happened to be the mother of his future bride. Well, Mrs. Hall chaperoned the young couple on a fishing trip in July 1905, and the couple decided to step away from camp and then get married. In our next story from January 9th of 1913, Dr. John C. Cotter, who had practiced medicine in New York City, surprised his entire hometown of New Bedford, Massachusetts, when he revealed that he'd been married for the past 12 years and was the father of two children. Dr. Cotter was a bit of a celebrity in New Bedford because he was a star athlete in college, had played professional baseball, and had coached the basketball teams at both Fordham and Columbia Universities. He had met his wife while interning at the New York Foundling Asylum, and at the time of their meeting, the former leader, Perrault, had just arrived in the United States from France and was working as a governess at the asylum. It's unclear why Dr. Cotter opted to keep his marriage a secret from all his friends back in New Bedford. The only person who knew there was his sister, Mrs. Ellen A. Dalton. While she respected her brother's desire to keep the marriage a secret, she was surprised to find out that others around New Bedford did not know. Quote, I naturally suppose that everybody in the city knew about it. I knew when he married 12 years ago, but of course said nothing about it as my brother desired to keep it a secret. She added, Dr. Carter is married and has been for the past 12 years and is the father of the dearest children ever born. Lastly, we have a story from Philadelphia of a secret marriage that took place on October 5th of 1927 and was kept under wraps until January 4th of 1928. Everyone acquainted with the couple knew that they would marry and awaited invitations to the wedding. Yet the former Mary Steer and her beau, William Barney Harris Jr., snuck off to Westchester to marry without anyone knowing. And why did they choose to do such a thing? Well, it's very simple they wished to avoid all the preparation and formality involved with an official church wedding. The couple simply desired to keep it simple, and elopement seemed like the ideal way to do so. The couple would go on to have two children. Daughter Mary was born in 1929, and son George in 1930. Sadly, Mary Elizabeth Steer Harris passed away on October 31st of 1939 from acute heart failure. She was only 31 years old. Her husband, William, did remarry, and he died in June of 1974 at the age of 70. Well, that brings the 148th episode of the Useless Information podcast to a close. Now, this story on Billy Cook was not one I had planned on doing. I had another story in mind. But my wife and I were watching the classic film noir movie The Hitchhiker and afterward learned that it was based on the two-week manhunt for Cook. Now, my wife and I will probably be talking about that movie in a future podcast, so, it seemed like a good time to tell the story of Billy Cook from 70 years ago. Now, the movie is in the public domain, so it's available on YouTube, Vimeo, archive.org, Library of Congress, and so on. And it runs only 70 minutes, so you may want to check it out. That's The Hitchhiker. It's two words hitch hyphen hiker, The Hitchhiker, and see how it compares with the real story that I just told you. Just a reminder that my new book, The Flipside History, is currently available. And if you enjoy listening to the stories that I include in this podcast, I do highly encourage you to get a copy of the book. Be sure to sign up for my Twitter feed. It's at uselessinfocast, at uselessinfocast, and you'll be among the first to know when a new episode is released. Also, be sure to like the show on Facebook. You can just do a quick search for the Useless Information Podcast to find it. Make sure you subscribe to the Useless Information Podcast, and you can do it through whatever podcast platform you use. That can be Amazon Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeart, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and so on. Now, there have been some problems with Apple Podcasts over the past week. Some podcasts have just totally disappeared from their directory, and in my case, some of my episodes weren't there, although I do think it's totally fixed now. And this is all part of their effort to monetize podcasts. They're moving towards a subscription-based model. Anyway, take care, everyone. Bye.